inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. I want to start off today's episode by apologizing for confusion around the questions and themed podcasts. I mentioned this on my Instagram stories. By the time you hear this, it'll be two weeks ago. But because there was confusion, I want to also mention it here. Now, we have pretty much put an end to the themed podcasts. However, some people reached out to me and they really wanted a couple of themes, you know, could could you please do a themed podcast about this, you know, X, Y, or Z? I had said yes. And so when we decided to not do the themes anymore, I'd still said yes to a few of those. I want to say like four or five of them. And so I wanted to honor the fact that I told people I would do those themed ones. And that's why you see those rolling out. Now, my goal was to have those go out. So I schedule the posts to go so, so that you can put in your questions like, I schedule that ahead of time so that I don't forget. And for some reason, I put two back to back. Now, that was my error. I meant to space them out like every month or so, but I forgot. Um, But I was checking in the ones that I had scheduled, and I think we only have like one or two more themed ones. One's about OCD that I saw, and I think there was another, but I forget what the the topic was. So those of you that were like, I thought you said you weren't going to do these anymore. You are correct. However, I should have been more clear that, you know, some members of our community had asked for specific topics and I wanted to honor that. So you'll see a few more of those roll out and then we'll go back to where it's just any question you've got, we'll pick the top, you know, 10, eight to 10 of them um, and I'll answer those. Okay. Now, without further ado, let's get into the questions for today. And the first question says, Katie, I would like to know more about the connection between binge eating disorder and childhood trauma because it seems that that topic isn't talked about enough. Why do we choose to cope with food rather than anything else? And is there really a connection between a mother's love and our relationship with food throughout our lives? Great questions. Now, first, I don't like to think that we choose to cope with food rather than anything else. Rather, I like to think of it that we don't have anything else we can control. So when we encounter childhood trauma, a lot of times, we have limited resources, right? We're, our resilience is pretty low. We're a child. There's not much we can do. We usually go into the freeze state. We don't have fight or flight options because we're so small, weaker than our, you know, whoever is harming us. And so we try to control or cope using the only thing that we really can control, which is ourselves, which is our bodies. Um, and that's usually regarding food. Again, because even my patients who struggle with addiction later talk about how as a child, they would try to sneak cigarettes or alcohol from their parents, but they couldn't always. And then they would self-injure or use food instead, essentially going back to the main goal, which is, or not main goal, but the, the main reason that we do these things is because we have no other way to cope. We don't have any resources or tools or any support. We, we control what we can, and that's our bodies. And so those are the three that I see most commonly with childhood trauma, food, so eating disorder, self-injury, and addiction. Now, other people, obviously, that's not hard and fast, like not 100% of people with childhood trauma are going to cope that way. But that's really why we see such a correlation with childhood trauma and eating disorders in particular. Now, binge eating disorder is interesting 
because as you know, all eating disorders are coping skills and truly binge eating disorder is the same as anorexia nervosa when it comes to treatment and when it comes to, you know, looking at the root cause and all of that stuff. However, in the same way that we will restrict and think it's almost like we use hunger as our numb out, like all I can't because we're we're wired for survival. So our system is going to focus on food so that we can survive. And if we're not giving it enough food, it's going to put all our energy, all our thoughts into getting food, which is why when we restrict, all we think about is food, right? 90% of our day or our brain space is taken up with thoughts of food. And the same goes for binge eating. It's just on the flip side. So instead of feeling hungry and having that be our numb out, feeling uncomfortably, uncomfortably full is the numb out. Because think of it, um, for a lot of people, we will overeat in certain events like a Christmas, a Thanksgiving or a birthday party or something. At least some of us have probably overeaten at least once in our life. And that discomfort that we feel from being too full is something that you almost can't ignore, just like the hunger, right? So that can't ignore and that extreme fullness is what keeps us from, again, it's that coping skill that keeps us from thinking about or feeling the real problem, which could be childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, whatever kind of abuse we've sustained in childhood, the eating disorder prevents us from actually having to acknowledge that that happened and that we feel terrible about it. Does that make sense? And so that's really the connection. There's no stronger connection between binge eating disorder or anorexia or bulimia or OSFED, which is essentially like the catch-all for any other eating disorder behaviors. It stands for otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder, O-S-F-E-D. Um, it's just that we're trying to cope with something we don't have the tools to cope with. So it's really just eating disorders are connected to childhood trauma. Okay. Now, the reason I went through what the reason we choose food, and I don't even like that word choose. It's like the reason that we use food as a way to manage rather than anything else. It's just what we have access to. It also could be connected in some cases, not all, but it could be connected to our family's relationship with food. So I have heard from a lot of members of our community, but also patients that I've worked with over the years where their mother or father will be dieting a lot or talking strangely about food or acting like they're proud for not eating something or or exercising a certain amount to earn the food. They'll talk in that way. Or uh, food has always been a way that their parent has coped. A lot of my binge eaters will also have parents that binge eat. Um, it could, they could have been raised in with the old adage of like, you know, clean your plate. There are people starving in other countries. And so we were taught from a very young age not to trust our hunger fullness cues and to push past it. And so we keep doing that. And that's why we go in that direction. Now, that's not always, but there can be that connection. And that would kind of also explain why food was the way that we went when it came to an unhealthy coping skill or us just trying to survive. That could explain it too. So I just want to add that in. And then finally, the connection between a mother's love and food this is going to sound really simplistic, but I'm just being honest here. It's because traditionally a mother is the one who feeds us because of breastfeeding. Now, I know not every woman breastfeeds, but mothers tend to be the ones that feed us in general, period. Therefore, from birth, we're primed to connect our mom with food because that helps us survive. That's what she does. 
And therefore, when we are lacking a mother's love, when there's neglect there, we can sometimes turn to food to try to soothe that or to fill that void because essentially that's what we felt like our mom should have given us, right? And she didn't give us that, nor did she give us like nurturing, love, care, support, any of those things. But we can attach food to that and then use food as a way to almost like fill that mom void. And like, you know, you know, you can only stay full for so long, so we'll have to keep doing it over and over, which can lead to, you know, all sorts of different things, whether it comes to like weight gain and medical issues and come along with that, or even just like sneaking food and hiding food and trying to perpetuate this binge cycle. And so that's really why there's a connection. And unfortunately, yes, there really is. That was a question. Is there really a connection? Yes, there is. And that's why. In general, I do want to add one last thing before we go to question number two. I would say that it's not just food to mother. It, it, traditionally, yes, it is. But I would argue that we could, there could be a case to be made that it's also just a father. Like it's it's primary caregivers. It's whoever, you know, our main source of love, affection, attention, feeding, and like care. Whoever that main source is could easily be connected to food. So that could also be like an aunt or a grandma or a nanny. But usually when you have like nannies or other people in your life, they're, it's like they're paid slash their job, like nannies to, to come to your aid and be there for you. It's more like when there's abuse and neglect, whether it's like a family member, like a mother, father, aunt, grandma, uncle, something like that. That's when we tend to see that like food neglect, that connection and why binge eating can happen. Does that make sense? I hope so. With that, let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hi, Katie, can you explain the difference between a binge or a binge eating disorder and the appetite changes associated with anxiety and depression? Great question. Sometimes I skip meals due to my anxiety, either because I get stuck in my head and forget that I need food or I feel too nauseous to eat. But then it usually results in a binge eating session afterwards because I've essentially starved myself. I know that disordered eating doesn't necessarily equal an eating disorder, but what can people like me do to make sure this behavior doesn't evolve into one? Great question. Now, an eating disorder is when we use food to cope. I think that's like the easiest explanation I can give. So if we're feeling overwhelmed for one reason or another, uh, we're dealing with flashbacks, trauma memories, uh, stress at work, things we can't cope with, we turn to food, either overeating, undereating, binging and purging as a way to kind of manage that and essentially numb out. So we think about the food that we're going to eat, not eat, et cetera, instead of the painful thing. Got it? Now, when it comes to anxiety or depression, part of those, uh, the symptoms of those are disruptions in our hunger fullness cues, meaning that we can just like forget to eat. There's no plan to use food as a way to cope. And I'm not saying eating disorder people at a certain point are like planning. It's like ever prevalent in their life. They almost don't know a life without it. But if we just think about it that way, that's the big difference that an anxiety, someone with anxiety or depression is not going to have any thoughts or feelings about the food. Whereas my eating disorder patients definitely would. There can be some sense of pride about doing this something in a certain way or not doing something in a certain way. There can be some sort of shame associated with it, but they do it anyway. There can be some sort of, you know, we have thoughts and feelings about this food behavior and we think about it and plan for it and engage in it, like taking up a lot of our time. Whereas my patients with anxiety and depression just forget or overeat and don't realize they're doing it. And it's more of a like a 
it's a, it's part of the depression. It's not something that they sought out and do as a way to cope. Okay. So how do you make sure this behavior doesn't evolve into an eating disorder? Essentially, my best advice is to get treatment for your anxiety or depression. Now that could mean that you see a therapist or a cognitive behavioral therapist could be, you know, that's what they do. That'd be like their specialties kind of, that could be incredibly helpful. If you really are just struggling, you forget a great thing to do is to set reminders in your phone and to kind of plan out what you're going to eat so that you are ensuring that you eat regularly, even if you maybe don't feel fully hungry or you just, you know, you're in the middle of something you forgot. It's important that we keep a schedule to our eating. Now, I know people are like, but Katie, that goes against intuitive eating. Intuitive eating would be the goal, but when it comes to someone with anxiety or depression whose appetite is suppressed or intensified due to that mental illness, the important point in it is actually just to like follow a meal plan or eat every few hours and do that until we can treat the anxiety or depression because once that's treated then we won't have this anymore essentially it's not an eating disorder on its own it's a symptom of their anxiety or depression so i hope that makes sense now if you find yourself thinking about food all the time and planning and like trying to do it as a way to control and you you feel like it's getting in, going in that direction right it's it's gone from appetite disturbance due to my anxiety or depression to more uh, more thoughts of food, more eating disorder based, let your therapist know. And my encouragement would be to seek out a therapist who understands eating disorders and most likely see a dietitian about once a month. So you can get a meal plan. You can talk about the food and how you're doing with the food and have someone who can guide you along the way. Again, a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders is key. If they try to talk about weight loss, weight gain numbers and stuff like that, they don't know about eating disorders. If they talk about you feeling full and checking in with yourself and they want to know how you ate and they ask about behaviors specifically, like, were you standing when you did that? Were you sitting when you did that? Did you do it in your car and throw the things away? Like what happened? That means they know and they get it. If you feel kind of called out and you maybe don't like them that much, it's probably because they're good at their jobs. Okay. There were a couple comments on this. Now, the first says, similarly, how do you deal with appetite changes due to medications? Great question. In the past, I've struggled with restricting, but I've been a lot better. But I'm back on my prescribed Adderall. Ooh, I don't love that. For my ADHD, since I'm back to school, it makes intuitive eating impossible as I am genuinely, and this is not my eating disorder talking, pretty much never hungry. I know it isn't your eating disorder talking. I've I've gone through this a lot of times with my patients. When I try to eat when I'm on the medication, I get really full or easily, I get full really easily or get grossed out since I don't have an appetite. Then at the end of the night, once it's worn off, I'm starving and will either binge or just force myself to go to bed. Should I not worry about it since it's technically intuitive? What do you know about eating disorders and Adderall? Thanks, Katie. Of course, um, I don't love it. Are there any other medications? And I know the answer is probably no, because like Vyvanse isn't great, but like anything that you could take that doesn't affect your hunger fullness cues that also helps you with your ADHD. Somebody please come up with a medication that does that. But I would encourage you if possible, like let's say you have a big round of tests through your classes and then you know you're going to have like a slower week. Can we try something else? Because usually ADHD type medications are fast acting. We're not talking like three or four weeks like um, SSRIs. So maybe we could try something and see if it's effective. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here 
more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But I really don't like it because of this specific thing. And what you're doing, even though it is intuitive, it's really not. Adderall just suppresses our hunger. And that's why when it wears off, you're like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. And I don't want you binging. I don't want you restricting and binging. So I would encourage you to put together a meal plan with a dietitian, or even with your therapist, just talking through, like you should have a, you know, like a protein, a vegetable or fruit and a carb, you know, and have those meals three times a day and have some snacks, like two to three snacks. You should be eating essentially depending on how long you're up every three to four hours. Okay. Like, I think when I worked at the eating disorder treatment center, I think we ate breakfast around like seven 30 and then we had a snack at like nine 30, you know, and then or maybe it was 9.30 or 10 and then lunch at noon. And, you know, it was like every few hours you're eating. And I would encourage you to do that, especially because you can get full really quickly. So I'm going to want, you know, it's probably best for you to eat smaller meals like all throughout the day versus trying to like cram them into meals if you can. That might mean, you know, we need to like figure out different like granola bars and apples with peanut butter and hummus with pita chips and things that you can like bring along and eat along the way so that you are getting enough food and you're not like starving at the end of the night. Um, and that might take some, you know, work around with your dietitian. But essentially right now you can't be an intuitive eater eater because your medication is affecting it. And again, another like word of advice that I have is like talking to your psychiatrist and seeing if they will allow you to try a different medication. And we might do this at a time, you know, I mean, it's August right now, almost or it's September. So you know, maybe we do it over the holiday and just see like there's things that I would want you to try just to see if we can find a better way because Adderall and aging disorders just do not mix and it's just not my favorite. Although I do want you to do well in school and I understand. Um, yeah. Okay. Those are my thoughts. I hope it's helpful. Now, somebody else said as an add-on during my short and traumatizing time in DBT, I'm so sorry, I had a horrible time with it. You know, not every therapy modality is going to be effective for everybody. My therapist took my explanation of the tendency I had to either not eat at all or binge while I was in low moods and assumed that I was restricting intentionally. I tried to explain it that it was more that I couldn't be bothered to eat and that it was overwhelmed with some sort of, you know, oh, a sort of depressive uh, nihilism, I think is how you say it, at the prospect that I'd been forced into therapy, ooh, forced into therapy. And I strongly felt um, was not the modality I needed Um a view I still agree with months and a new therapist later, not that I was restricting intake. It just, it wasn't an active process. It was passive. I did and did struggle with passive uh, suicidal ideation, hair pulling, but no other history of self-harm. Still, she insisted that restricting be put on my diary card and question if I was telling the truth every week when I said I hadn't, um, when it said that I hadn't, once I felt the urge to restrict. I know she has anorexia in her personal history. Do you think she was dealing with some sort of countertransference or was what I was doing, in fact, restricting food? Thanks, Katie. First of all, I'm sorry you had a bad time in therapy. I always hate to hear that people have bad experiences, but that's truly why we have like so many different therapy modalities and so many different therapists out there so you can find something that works for you. Now, like I said at the beginning about it being part of your depression, I believe this is more part of your depression so I don't know. I mean, you weren't eating. So technically speaking, yes, you were restricting food. However, I don't really think it would have been an eating disorder type of thing. But I also as a therapist would have marked it down that there was food restriction 
due to depressive symptoms and lack of appetite that was going on because sometimes we don't realize where something's coming from and we just want to be aware. And I think it's really important that if something's happening, that it's documented so we can track it, right? That's mainly the goal. Now, I don't know if it was countertransference. I do know that people who have have a history of eating disorders or even me personally who've worked with eating disorder patients, we can be more aware of it and want to mark things down to ensure because we know how sneaky these things are. Meaning that eating disorders can kind of creep up on us. We can think a patient is just, you know, um, going through something and therefore their appetite has changed when in fact they're doing it on purpose and we just haven't realized it yet because they, you know, haven't shared stuff about it because obviously things are kept in secret. So I, it doesn't sound like countertransference. It sounds like she's just looking out and wants to make sure that we're okay. And it's something we keep an eye on. And I actually think that's good therapeutic work. I'm not saying that you had to like that DBT, that it had to be a thing for you. Like I said, not all treatments work for all people. You find something that works for you. And if you don't trust the therapist and don't like them, you don't have to keep seeing them. But I don't think that what she was doing was in any way like a bad thing or that she was like doing it because of her own history. I think she's aware and she wanted to make sure that that was something that we like, you know, kept an eye on. And I, I think that's important because sometimes, like I said, we don't know how something's that big of a deal until it is. And so it's good that we keep an eye on things and track things. Now there was another comment <clears throat> said, I don't know if this is related or not, but what is the difference between binge eating disorder and food guilt? Hmm. Sometimes when I eat, I eat past the point of fullness, but only a little bit, not like the amount that you would see people do in the movies. No one in my life would, nor would I consider the amount of food that I eat larger, a larger portion than the average person. However, sometimes the guilt is so bad afterwards that I feel like I binged and I have the urge to run it off or to throw it up. I've never acted on the impulse, but there must be some title for what I'm experiencing. Even if it's just a shitty relationship with food, clinically speaking, of course, I love that. And I would say this is a shitty relationship with food and your body because like I said, we all overeat from time to time or undereat from time to time. And, and people who are, have healthy relationships with food don't really think anything of it other than the facts. But those of us with a bad, who have a bad relationship with food, possibly some disordered eating, because that fact that you have to like run it off or throw it up, you haven't acted on it. But the fact that those thoughts are present tells me we're moving in that eating disorder type direction. And what I would encourage you, the best book, to be honest, for anybody who's struggling with body image, feels shitty about themselves, judges what they eat and how they eat and when they eat. And there's, you know, all these thoughts about it, whether it's restricting or binging, it doesn't matter. The book is Eating in the Light of the Moon. And it's wonderful. It's in my Amazon store. You can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can find it there. I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, it is a little fairy tale, story tale kind of like, but I promise you that it is beneficial. And I don't love woo woo stuff or, you know, spiritual things. The store, it's like the stories are just so powerful and beautiful. And I think it can be really be beneficial. So I encourage you to check that book out. And if you're in therapy, I would encourage you to mention that this happens, that you have these kinds of thoughts because people who have a healthy relationship with food don't have any emotions attached to it. Food is just food. And I know that's so hard for people to understand because unfortunately our world is filled with messages about the ways that our bodies should or shouldn't look, what we should eat or shouldn't eat. There's always some new fad in some way in the diet world. The diet world makes billions with a B on us every, um, every year at least. 
it's a huge business. The fitness industry and the diet industry and like even the vitamin industry, huge industries all catered around telling us that we're doing something wrong, that our bodies aren't good the way that they are. And I'm here to tell you that that's just money making. It's like fear is a huge motivator for people. And so those industries utilize that to make us feel like we're lesser than, or we're going to have high cholesterol or high blood. If we don't do these things, we don't subscribe to those diets. If we don't, you know, it, it's so toxic. And I, I believe that's why a lot of us do have food guilt. Why a lot of us, like I even talked personally in a video a while back about my own relationship with my body and how it's not always been the best. And it's not that I can blame other people for it because it's my relationship that I have to work on. But I just want you to know, I do understand how difficult what I'm asking you to do is. And that's why I do think this is some kind of disordered eating slash shitty relationship with food, clinically speaking, because we shouldn't have any like feelings attached to our food. I used to run this group at the Eating Disorder Treatment Center called Food and Feelings Group. Everybody hated it. It was always after meals and like, well, it was usually after lunch or dinner. And it was essentially talking about the feelings that we associated with it and how how we got through that meal and what came up for us, you know? And so maybe do some of your own like thinking and journaling about this, you know? When I feel too full, what does that trigger? Where does that come from? Have I, what kind of messages about food have I heard in my life? What kind of messages do I tell myself about my body and what I eat? Be curious, not judgmental. We're just learning, right? We're, we're being a detective for our, our relationship with ourselves and food. And it's important that we can be honest because we can always be like, oh, it's fine. I don't really, uh it's not bad. I mean, I'm not like doing it every day, you know, but we want to make sure we have a handle on this and we understand this so that it doesn't potentially get worse or continue to bother us because you should be able to eat. And if you have a bite or two too many to not feel completely overcome with guilt. Okay. Now there was another comment on this says talking about differences. I would like to know if it's possible to have a panic attack because of a a fear of binge eating disorder or any other eating disorder. So that instead of having a panic attack because of an anxiety disorder, it comes because of the fears of the ED. I had an experience where I accidentally sat in front of a mirror at the doctor's office and I had terrible thoughts about the way that I looked and then started panicking and crying. However, despite having an anxiety disorder, I'm not sure if that's if that's what a panic attack feels like, maybe you could define it with symptoms or if all I experienced was, were just anxiety attacks. Are panic attacks different compared to the tension that comes before binges? All great questions. Now, anxiety attacks are panic attacks. I know our, our world likes to use different words. They're the same thing. That's it. Now, a panic attack is when... Now, everybody's going to be different, but I'm just going to list some of the symptoms, Okay. First of all, we can dissociate. A lot of my patients will be like, and I blacked out. I don't remember. Okay. There's an intense fear of us fainting or passing out in some way. We can start to feel like we're drowning and dying at the same time, or like we can't catch our breath or like our heart just keeps racing and our our palms can get sweaty. We can get hot or cold. There's usually severe changes in our temperature. We can suddenly start like our breath gets shortened. We start gasping for breath. Um, We can feel like we're going to suffocate. Um... Yeah, that's just to name a few. But the fainting, the fear of fainting or falling down or passing out is incredibly common. The feeling like we're having a heart attack is incredibly common. Um, yeah, and then the lapses in memory. Overall, our nervous system is completely overwhelmed and it's like sounding all the alarms, okay? So 
let's go through some of these questions. Now, can you have a panic attack because of a fear of an eating disorder? It's still from anxiety. It's still the build of anxiety. And if you remember what anxiety is, it's uncontrollable worry. Now that worry can be about anything. That worry can be about an eating disorder. That worry can be about um, my partner maybe getting hurt or my ability to do my job or uh, that I'm worried I'm going to be late. It could be any number of worries. And that's just a few. I mean, it's like, it could be, it could even be multiple ones all at the same time, right? Anxiety is fun like that, right? So we would have a panic attack because of the build of the worry of an eating disorder or the worry um, about like our body image or that we're going to get fat or that we're going to be judged. I don't know, whatever goes through your head. Okay. So I don't, we would not, panic attacks are not a symptom of eating disorders. Uh, eating disorders can come along with, meaning we have a another diagnosis. Like you said, you have an anxiety disorder. So we can have a dual diagnosis, like more than one. And they can like kind of pun, like, I apologize for the pun, but they can like feed off of each other. And we could have that happening. I definitely do have patients who panic or have had panic attacks when asked to eat certain things like trigger foods or um, foods they'd always deemed bad or too unhealthy. Like I remember at the Eden Disorder Treatment Center, we had fast food as a challenge meal. And one of my patients just like completely panicked. Um, we got her to calm down. She was fine. She finished. Nope, nothing bad happened, right? But again, that that was eating that was eating disorder based, but it was also that anxiety build and that dysregulation that can come along with it. And so, yes, does that make sense? I hope so. So it can be it's separate, but it can also they can work together like in tandem in a really painful way. And I'm sorry for anybody who's going through that. Um, Okay, and the last part of this, I'm just making sure I answer everything, says, are panic attacks different compared to the tension that comes before binges? Yes, that is different. Um, The tension that comes before binges is more eating disorder based, and it's almost like the buildup to a ritual or to a release or to whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish there, you know, with the binge. And so that's more of like the eating disorder build, I guess. I don't know a better term, but because it feels different to everybody else. So I don't want to discredit anybody's experience. But it's almost, it is the tension building and it's more about the fact that we're, we need to cope with the food. And so it's the buildup knowing that we're going to do that. With that, let's move on to question number three. This question says, Katie, bunches of eyes. It's cute. I have a question about eating disorders, but not related to body image or calories or anything. It's more just disordered eating. I forget to eat a meal and then my OCD says it's too late for whatever meal. So then I have to wait for the next meal time, except this happens every single day. I'm not sure if this counts as an eating disorder. It's very confusing for me. I want to eat the right amounts per day. I just can't for some reason. I rarely eat three times a day. It's often just once and I genuinely don't care about gaining weight or eating right or wrong. So I don't know where this fits or if it fits at all. For added information, alarms aren't helpful. It's like you read my mind. Because if I'm in the middle of something, I have to finish and I inevitably forget again. Any help would be chef's kiss. Thanks. Oh, and I forgot to add the part that's related to the binge eating disorders. Oops. I then eat a huge meal at the end of the day before bed. Sometimes this is my only meal of the day because I'm obviously very hungry and my tasks for the day are done. So there are no distractions. Gotcha. So you think your struggles with eating are more connected to your OCD. 
because there's no, you don't spend any time thinking about food. I feel like this might be a symptom in the way we were talking about with anxiety or depression, that your um, lack of appetite or ability to just forget and get distracted comes more from your OCD. Now, I would let your therapist know that this is happening because then I would keep an eye on this. But I believe that if we find a way to properly treat our OCD, then these urges to not urges, but this forgetfulness for food will go away because we won't be like so rigid. And just so you know, the way that we can overcome OCD, which I know this is incredibly uncomfortable and there is obviously more to it than this, but this is a huge part of it is doing exposures, meaning that I would encourage you, like my homework for you would be to set those alarms for breakfast, lunch. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's stay at Whole Foods Market. Dinner. And when they go off, you stop and you eat. And yes, I know you're like, my anxiety is going to build. Oh yeah, it's going to build. And then it's going to go away. And then we'll realize that stopping really isn't that horrible. We're not going to completely lose our place and not be able to finish. And breaking out of that OCD pattern is actually incredibly freeing. Now, yes, it takes work. And I know all my OCD people are out there like, yeah, 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 but it's really uncomfortable. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable, but it gets more comfortable the more that we do it. And so that's really my advice is that we have to work on our OCD because then if if it is what we're hypothesizing, that it's not an eating disorder that's attached to our OCD in some way or our anxiety, because I put OCD under kind of like this umbrella of anxiety disorders. If we feel like it's coming from that, then when we treat that, this issue with eating will go away. <clears throat> if you don't see it go away and you find yourself still like quote unquote forgetting to eat, then we can talk. Then it'd be more eating disorder based and it'd be, you know, maybe because it sounds like it's very restrictive. So it'd probably fall in the OSFED group right now. But, you know, if things did, did get worse, we could, it'd be a different diagnosis at that point. But that's when we would need like specific eating disorder treatment. Okay. Now there's a comment that says, oh my God, is that even a thing? I always do this and I never imagined it counts as an eating disorder. I've lost X number of kilograms within a month due to my depression last December. And now no matter how much I try to eat properly on time, I always do the same that is mentioned in the question above. I tried to stick in a, a program with a dietitian, but it didn't work and I didn't gain weight at all. What do you think this could be and what should I do? Okay. I would, to be truthful, like I said, I don't necessarily think this is an eating disorder because there aren't any thoughts or plans or judgments around food. It's more of a, it's a symptom of your OCD or whatever mental illness you're struggling with. Now, I would, like I said before, tell your therapist about this, tell them this is happening and we need to work to find a way to get resolution of our symptoms of our, you know, OCD, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. And if we can get help for that, then this struggle to eat regularly and keep on schedule with that will go away because it's not really about the 
food or the restricting or the eating, the binging. It does. It's not really about that. It's, it's actually more to do with, in this case, the OCD. Okay. And there's another comment says, hi, I don't have an eating disorder. I don't care about my body weight. I don't even care about calories and I don't own a scale. However, at the end of the day, I'm so tired that I skip dinner most of the time, even though I'll feel hungry. There have been times that I fall asleep because I'm exhausted and I don't get a chance to eat dinner. During the weekdays, the meal I skip is lunch because I'm always so busy that I'm um, eating close to dinner time. Then my question is, how do people like me deal with this issue of disorganized eating, especially if we are pre-diabetic? Ooh, I would like more information about disorganized eating for people without an eating disorder. Thanks for your insightful comments. Of course, now eating disorder or not, we all should be eating every three to four hours. And if you, if your schedule does not allow for that, then we have to change your schedule. I know, I know you don't like that answer, but basic self-care has to be a priority. I know we live in a world of like hustle culture, go, 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 get it done, take no breaks, show no mercy, rah, rah, rah. That will kill you. That's not healthy. That's not good. Our cortisol levels are going to be through the fucking roof because we're stressed to the max. We're not eating enough. Our sleep is probably disrupted because we're super fucking anxious because our job is or school is asking too much of us. None of that is good. And I know people are like, but I can't, but, but, but this is a non-negotiable. This is like, take care of yourself or deal with it later, right? You're pre-diabetic. We're already showing some issues with like our habits around food and what our body's trying to manage. We need to make it a priority. And the way we do that is either setting reminders or alarms on our phone. I mean, if it's work, we are entitled legally to breaks and a lunch. In those breaks, we eat a snack. At that lunch, we eat said lunch. Now, I know you're like, but I have to run at a... I'm sorry, if you have to run an errand, you're going to have to do it a different time, or you're going to have to pack a meal that day that can be eaten on the go, like sandwiches are great, handheld, you know, easy peasy lemon squeezy. I know that that's like tough love, Katie, and sometimes I hate being her because I know this is hard, but that's how we manage. This disorganized eating is good for no one. Energy levels will suffer when we let our blood sugar level get really low, meaning we haven't eaten in a long time. It can be hard to recover from that where we like are sleepy the rest of the day. I'd assume you're pretty tired. You're probably pretty anxious and energized because your body wants you to eat. And then when you eat, you probably crash. And that's also probably why you're so tired at the end of the day that you can't even eat dinner because your body hasn't had enough energy to do any of the things you asked of it. And so if we're going to, we have to find a better way. That either means that even if it's microwavable dinners, we need to buy those. So we have them, pop them in. If you eat them and go to sleep, I don't even care. We just need you to eat something. I need you to be eating more regularly. I know you're saying I'm so busy. We need to make the time. We cannot book ourselves through, through our lunch breaks or lunch hours and not make time for eating. And breakfast for everybody should happen at the beginning of your day. And if you have to get up earlier to make that happen, I'm not a morning person either, but get up in time to eat something, a bowl of cereal, a banana and peanut butter on toast or something. I don't care what it is. Eggs and toast like I have. If you want to make a whole fucking bread, I don't care. Whatever. Get up and eat that breakfast. It's a perfect way to start off. Yay. Look at us. We're already on track and we can get up earlier to ensure that happens. 
so that we're not not eating until dinner because that's not acceptable for our bodies this isn't even therapeutic this is just like honest just basic knowledge of human existence and how a human body works like you can talk about metabolism like a, a fire pit and you have to light that fire and then you have to keep adding wood to it little by little you don't add enough wood the fire goes out you add too much the fire goes out we have to keep it going little by little that's how our body runs it's like a little engine and we're just putting food in it to keep it chugging along and too much or not enough either way it's not good for us and so eating every three to four hours i'm i know i just keep beating the dead horse with this but i'm just telling you that's going to be what's best for your body now, I know I'm not a medical doctor, but I've worked with a shit ton of them and I could get into all of the, even my good friend, Kate, um, she got, what'd she get her her PhD in? It was like, essentially like microbiology level nutrition, but I don't, I don't remember the name of it, but anyway, she could even, I could probably call her, we could have her on to tell us exactly from a cellular level what our body needs and what it does with food and why it's important to eat regularly. But we need to do that. And that's my advice is we have to prioritize it. It's essentially a non-negotiable. Bodies need fuel. We need to stop and take a moment for it. If we're in a hurry, we can eat a sandwich in like 10, 15 minutes. And I think that's fine. And then if you do have your lunch break, you're like, well, I have a lot of other shit to do. That leaves you 45 minutes for the other shit. No excuses, people. Okay. Okay. Tough love. Katie's going to go away. We're going to move on to question number four. This question says, Hey Katie, I hope you're well. My question is how does one reduce cravings? Interesting. Also, can one embark on their own treatment for binge eating as opposed to seeking professional help? If so, where does one start? Thanks for your input and be well. Of course, um, you can start working on it yourself. I just, it's so difficult because a lot of the work is figuring out where it's coming from for you. And you can start to try to think about that. But the thing that's kind of tricky is that when we do that work without extra support and tools, we're, we're triggered. And then we want to binge more or, you know, engage in unhealthy behaviors more. And I want you to have support when that happens so that you don't feel lost and overwhelmed. Um, But I still would encourage you at this point to pick up that book. I was talking about the eating in the light of the moon. I think it's incredibly helpful. Um, Yeah. So I don't, you can, but I don't, it's, it's really difficult. Again, not impossible, just difficult because the thing about doing therapeutic work on our own, the fact is we all have the answers and the the tools and the resources. We just don't know it yet. And a therapist essentially helps show us what we can do and offer those tools to us and be like, see, you had this the whole time. And you're like, oh my God. <clears throat> and they help guide it and push us in a direction. <clears throat> and they help guide us and push us along in a healthy direction. And I mean, yes, we can, like I said, yes, we can do it, but it's it's not something that I would recommend only because it's so difficult and we're going to need that support. And I want you to have it if, when you need it, but start with that book. And if you feel able to start considering like where this is coming from for you and when it started and maybe is it from like upbringing, if you can start doing that work, that's that's the, a good place to start, okay? Now, the main question of how do we reduce cravings? Now, cravings can come from a lot of places. Now, 
Number one, I want you guys to know cravings isn't a bad thing. Our body craves certain things, usually because it needs certain things. So all of a sudden, this sounds weird, but just the way I can crave a hamburger or chocolate or pizza or macaroni and cheese or any number of foods, I can also crave like a crunchy cucumber or a salad or um, Sean and I make these like Parmesan spinach ball things that are delicious. Like you can crave those things too. So cravings are not bad. Our bo- it's essentially our body's way of being like, hey, I need more iron or phosphorus or potassium or whatever the fuck. And it tells us by a craving. However, in the eating disorder realm, when we feel like the craving is more attached to an emotion than an actual bodily craving, or we can't even be satiated by having some of like a regular amount of that food. Let's say my craving is for, I don't even know, let's say sandwiches. I really want turkey sandwich. I have a craving. Um, Let's say that I am not satiated, even though I've had two full turkey sandwiches. That's not normal. I know I'm not judging how much people eat. I'm just saying that that's not a regular craving. That's actually an eating disorder craving. And what I mean by that is when we have an eating disorder, cravings, the word cravings is actually really powerful because it can often be attached to a craving we have for something else. Meaning when I have a craving for those turkey sandwiches, um, I'm actually craving, you know, love and support from my mom, let's say. And that's why that sandwich isn't going to fill the mom void because it's just not the same. Can it make me so full that I kind of like numb out and can't think about the fact that I'm sad about my mom? Sure. It sure can. But then that craving is going to come right back. And that's why impulse logs are incredibly helpful. Someone left a comment about that below this question, I believe. And I was like, yes, right in line with what I would say. Impulse logs can be helpful when it comes to cravings. And that can help weed out whether this craving is our body asking for, you know, chocolate, because it needs, I forget what's in chocolate, but there's actually something in there that's really helpful for you and really important and your body needs it, like dark chocolate. Um, Or is it that I'm craving connection or I'm craving support from someone, right? Like what is this craving? And so impulse logs for anybody, the real short and sweet of it is write down. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What it is you're feeling, what it is you're craving, what it is you want to do, some other things that you could do to check in first, like I said, like, is it that I'm, you know, wanting this or that or the other, or do I think my body really is needing this? Do I have some other coping skills I can do? And then, you know, wait 30 minutes and what action did you take? That's kind of a rough breakdown. I have the full impulse log in my book, Traumatized. Um, I think it's on page 190, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. But anyway, um, use impulse logs. You can look up online, Google, uh, how to use an impulse log and it'll come up. Um, but that could really help you figure out where your cravings are coming from. And in essence, kind of reduce what I would call emotional cravings. Okay. There's a comment on this says, how does BED or binge eating disorder start? 
Does there have to be an initial restriction? Because then eating more would technically stop the cravings, right? Great question. Binge eating has nothing to do with hunger fullness. And I know that some of us who don't have eating disorders or don't engage in that kind of behavior can struggle to comprehend. Binge eating disorder has more to do with how we are feeling emotionally, like what we're craving emotionally. It could also have a lot to do once we're caught in the throes of our eating disorder. It can have a lot to do with what we have access to. Because I would have patients who would, um, who knew that their drive to and from work was the only time no one would be with them. And so that was when they would binge. Or they knew that they would have like events where it was like a potluck kind of style and they could go back as many times as they want and they could sit with different people so people wouldn't know how much they're eating. So they knew they could take advantage of that. So <clears throat> it doesn't really start with like being restricting. It can, but not always. If you remember the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder, and this is pulling from memory. So if I forget anything, you let me know in the comments, but it's that we eat more than what, and this is, I'm using air quotes. If you're just listening, a normal person would eat in a short amount of time. Now, what that means is when you think of like a serving of something, like if, you know, like I said, like a turkey sandwich, I have a turkey sandwich for lunch and maybe a bag of chips, a little, you know, like a little bag for lunch and like some fruit and I'm full. We think that's like a normal amount of food. Someone with binge eating disorder would eat more than that in a very short period of time. So we're talking like, you know, when people eat, like I said, you have lunch for an hour and let's say people spend like a half an hour eating or 45 minutes eating. This person would do it in like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's very quick no time to check in with hunger fullness. That's why it has nothing to do with that. And it's more about the numbing out and the, like the emotional craving that's being like, not really being satiated, but that we're trying to satiate. So there doesn't have to be an initial restriction. Oh, and then, sorry, I forgot to say, and then in binge eating disorder, we eat that in a small amount of period, a small amount of time. We eat more than, you know, quote unquote, what a normal person would eat. And then there's no compensatory behaviors, meaning with bulimia, we would binge eat and then we would, you know, purge or run, abuse laxatives, things like that to try to get the food out to uh, purge the food. Binge eating disorder does not have that. So there's no compensatory behaviors. So, and eating more doesn't technically stop the cravings because the cravings aren't regular cravings. It's eating disorder cravings like I talked about. Okay, cool. Now there's another one that says, additionally, could you talk about the glow up diaries on YouTube? Because one creator said that she obviously had binge eating disorder because she never used any compensatory behaviors. But then she said in comments, oh, then she comments about working out and restricting in general. So I'm very confused. Is compensatory behavior in BED possible? No, this person just doesn't know what they're talking about and that's okay. Or can you be, can you maybe shortly distinguish between binging and anorexia, bulimia, and BED, or how it differs between these disorders, of course. So just like I said, binge eating disorders, when we binge, so we eat more than a normal person would eat in a short amount of time, and there's no compensatory behaviors. Someone with uh, bulimia does the same. They binge, so they eat more than a normal person would eat in a short amount of time, and then there's compensatory behaviors. Now, when we have anorexia, the only difference between bulimia um, and uh, anorexia, a subtype purging type, is that someone with anorexia has a lower than ideal body weight. And that ideal word is dis- is actually something that is created and decided upon by a medical professional, not you, not online, fucking Googling BMI bullshit. It's none of that. This body, body weight, what your body needs to weigh is something that a real physician needs to figure out. And so if you are below that, 
then that would be anorexia, but you're still engaging in purging behaviors, meaning you're, whenever you eat, you purge, right? So in anorexia, purging type, they don't, it's usually not a binge, even though it'll feel like a binge to them, okay? I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Katie, what's the difference between binge eating and just overeating? I'm pretty sure I struggle with binge eating, but my psychiatrist asked me if I'm binging or just overeating. And honestly, I don't even really know how to tell the difference. Thanks for everything you do. Now, if we're eating more, if we're always eating to the point of being overly full, I would say that's binge eating disorder. I know that's hard for people to hear. But when we're disconnected from our bodies due to trauma in our past or whatever the reason our eating disorder exists, or this, what you would call this unhealthy relationship with food, right? We're doing that to kind of numb out. We're doing it to, to think about the fullness instead of what happened. And if we're doing that all the time, that's a pattern and that, that then you're slowly meeting diagnostic criteria. And I forget um, if it's, I don't know the diagnostic cra- off the top of my head um, of binge eating disorder, but I think it's like, I want to say it's like a two week period, but let me see really quick if I can find it easily here while I talk to you. Okay. So re okay. The diagnostic criteria is number one, recurrent and persistent episodes of binge eating. Number two, binge eating episodes are associated with three or more of the following. Number one, eating much more rapidly than normal. Remember I said in a short amount of time. Number two, eating until feeling uncomfortably full. Number three, eating large amount of foods when not feeling physically hungry. Remember what I said? It has nothing to do with hunger fullness. Number four, eating alone because of being embarrassed by how much one is eating. This is incredibly common and something that I want you to notice because my patients who are binge eaters will say that when they'll eat before and after they go to events because they don't want anybody judging when they want to binge, if they've decided they're going to binge or they're going to do that. And then they go to an event and we'll have, you know, a quote unquote normal meal. So if you've been out with someone and you can't judge it by that. And finally, feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed or very guilty after overeating. It's a shame associated with this. And then we go into the regular criteria. It says marked distress. So number three of it, right? Marked distress regarding binge eating. And four is the absence of regular compensatory behaviors such as purging. So that's what binge eating disorder is. Now, only you know what your process is when you're overeating. However, if it's something that's happening regularly, and you find yourself wanting to hide it and there's shame about it and you're not doing any compensatory behaviors, I would say it's binge eating disorder, but check that criteria and you can um, kind of decide for yourself because overeating is something that's not done with any regularity. It's, there's no shame about it. We don't have any, we don't hide it from people. Um, I'm not eating really, really fast all the time. Like I might be hung, really hungry one time, so I do it, but it's, again, it's not this this pattern, this thing that's happening all the time. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hello, Katie, this might not be related to this week's theme, but I hope you consider answering it. I did because there was definitely some confusion and I take ownership over that. I feel like I just woke up now and I realized I've wasted my childhood slash teenage years by not being a child or a teenager. Now I've reached a point where I don't want to grow up and time scares me a lot and freaks me out. I'm the first child and have 
have six other siblings. Whew, so you are parentified right away. I love them all, and I've always felt responsible for them. I won't lie. When I was a child, it used to be fun, but now it's not. I still do this, and it's not because my parents neglected us at all. They were loving and caring, but I was given that role. You're the big sister. Your siblings are your responsibility. Or you're the oldest. You should do things right so that they see you doing things right. Or you're the oldest. You should drink that milk in front of your siblings so that they do. Or don't say that you don't like this because then they'll behave like you, etc., etc., etc. I hated milk, and I used to vomit after drinking it sometimes, but I forced myself to drink it. Those are just some random and silly examples, but now I feel lost. I don't know myself, what I like, what I don't like in general. I sometimes hate life and hate the fact of existing. The the idea of waking up 5, 10, 20 years later is freaking me out. I dissociate a lot too. At the beginning, I was able to tell if something feels real or not, but now I just can't. And I don't know if what I'm feeling right now is the normal or the real that everyone else feels or if I'm just getting worse. I always stop myself from thinking and feeling. I have many unprocessed trauma, sexual abuse, and other things, and I truly want to be able to process them and heal. But anytime I try to sit with my feelings or think about any of my little or big T's, I feel disconnected. My brain tries to ignore and delete the thoughts immediately as if I'm wasting my present time trying to process things that happened and ended in the past. Then I start again questioning life. And then I stop myself from thinking about, um, thinking from that, about that in the first place. And it just goes like this. I can't heal unless I properly think or face what I suffer from. I'm in therapy, but it just seems like it's taking forever. How can I stop from stopping myself? You're helping a lot, Katie. Thank you. Oh, of course. Yes. Happy to help. Okay. A couple things. There's like a lot in here that I want to address. Let me get a little water here. First, you never got a chance to be a child. And I think in your therapeutic process, we're going to want to grieve the loss of our childhood. And I did that inner child workshop. I don't know if that's something that you can financially afford, but I would encourage you to check it out. You just go to my website, katiemorton.com. It was a two, two different two hour workshops. And I did it over the course of two different Fridays, and those are, were recorded and are accessible and available for purchase on my website. Because there, I think there's going to be a part of you, and this is something you can also do with your therapist. Like you don't necessarily need my workshop. I'm just offering it as a resource that's available. But um, you could do that work in therapy because we're going to have to get in touch with little you because I think there's a lot of healing between her and you now. And so that component of like, you know, not wanting to grow up and feeling like you never had a childhood. I think a lot of that can be worked on and resolved in that inner child work. And what I mean by inner child work is essentially having a conversation with younger you. And I know that sounds like weird, but it's incredibly helpful in healing. Even when I was putting together the workshop and doing some of the stuff, like I did the exercises myself to ensure they made sense and were things that we could do. It was healing for me because younger us has a lot of things to say. And because we're little, Often nobody listens to us or we don't have the words to put to it. We don't even know what to call it. And we don't have any like resources. Like we always forget how, uh, how little emotional intelligence we had, how little control we had over our lives and getting back in touch with younger us can be really helpful in not only 
processing trauma, but also just offering some support and compassion to little us when maybe we didn't get that. Like you didn't like milk, but you couldn't tell your parents didn't allow you to just speak up and say like, I don't like this because they're like, pretend you like everything so that your siblings will say they like it. And while I understand that from a parental point of view, that's not right. That's not okay. It would be okay to say to your siblings, I don't feel like milk tonight. And I feel like I don't want milk either. Like what? They don't get to decide either. I don't know that whole, like everybody has to eat. I, I get it again from a logistic, there's six, you had six siblings, the seven of you, that's a lot of people. So I understand it, but then essentially none of you, or maybe I don't know if your siblings were allowed to say they didn't like things, but you never got to decide. And of course, now you feel like you don't know what you like in general, because you never got to try things. I would encourage you to try things like, oh, um, I, you know, I made this meal for this day and that day, but you know, on Friday, I think I'm going to try sushi or Thai food. And I would just go into the restaurant and get something little. Like if you can sit at the bar or something, I would encourage you to do that. Or you can order a little bit to your house or pick something up at the grocery store, but getting those little things, you can try. Do I like spicy foods? I don't know. Let's try. I know it can be wasteful. People can be like, Katie, why would you do that? But we don't know until we try things. And that's just food related. I also think it's important to try out different activities, different I don't know, video games, movies. There's so many things. And also know that likes change and everybody should be trying new things and figuring out if they still like or don't like some other things because it can change. We can change. I make a whole, my whole career is based around the belief and well, the fact rather that we can change, but we have to want to. And so I encourage you to try new things and just give it a go. Um, but that, okay, so that's the beginning component. Now, the second is more about like processing and this kind of like shutdown. And my advice to you is to A, tell your therapist this is happening and B, work on those resources. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sources. Now I know everybody listening who's doing trauma work already just went blech. I hate it, Katie, but we need, you, you don't have enough resilience or enough resources or tools to help you get through. So you're just shutting down. That's not bad. That just means we need to start back up with the coping skills or resources that we have. And those, those are things like having a, a safe place we can go to in our head, having someone we can call. Uh, these can be distraction-based coping skills, things like I'm going to paint my nails. I'm going to organize that. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to do something different to distract my mind from it. Or um, these can be things like doing a full body shake, journaling, like calling or texting with a friend, like I was saying earlier, um, anything like that. So having an even grounding technique, because if you feel like you're like completely shut down, it might be dissociation. So we might want to have like uh, a way to change our temperature in session. Like maybe we hold on to some ice or something, or maybe we splash cold water in our face again, if it's accessible, um, doing a full body shake, counting the colors in the room, meaning how many things in this room are blue or black or brown, doing the ABC game. What, what in the room is ha- starts with letter A, starts with letter B and so on. Those that will be helpful and allow you to 
stay in therapy to think slash, you know, face what you're suffering from, as you said, but we just, we can't right now. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with you. This isn't bad. This is actually very normal. And it just means we went too fast. We got to go back a little bit, build up, got to beef up some of our tools so that when we get to that place, we have them to use. Cool. Cool. There was a comment on this and says, as an add-on, my therapist doesn't bring anything up unless I do. And I seem like I will, <laughs> I'll never do that. I need her to force me to do so. But she's like, no, I won't force you whenever you're comfortable with it. Talk. Ooh, what should I do when I always run away from my thoughts and don't even know what to talk about? That's, I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> I have a couple thoughts. Number one, you can journal about it and then give it to her and say, I want you, I want to talk about this even though I know you're not going to, but that's an option because maybe you're able to journal or email her in between sessions what you, you know, quote unquote, want to talk about. Number two, maybe we need to find a different therapist because that like laid back approach might not be beneficial for you. Now, for someone like me, I'm going to be honest, I'm like verbal diarrhea in therapy. So that might actually work for me because as long as she can stand up and like has tools and resources for me and like advice that's helpful, then they'd be fine because I'm going to tell her everything. But for someone like you, who's a little more like reserved and is, doesn't feel free to share things, you're like, <laughs> no, never. You're going to need someone to be more proactive. And you might even tell her this. I think it's also fair to give her another chance and to tell her, hey, I'm going to need you to ask. And you're saying you want to wait till I'm ready. I'm never going to tell you I'm ready. I'm just telling you that right now. Because sometimes when we talk about the problem, in therapy, instead of the thing in therapy, we're having a problem with, you know, like the topic, like the trauma or whatever, let's say. So I'm just talking about that difficulty, like I'm not opening up can be the key in and that can be kind of like our sneaky way in. So I would do one of those things that, that's kind of those are our options, essentially. And what you're experiencing is incredibly normal. Don't think that like everybody's like me and comes in and dumps everything. Some people do, but a lot of people have a difficult time opening up and that's totally normal. So I would push her a little bit on this to see, because if we like her, I want you to be able to keep seeing her, but we need it to be beneficial. And at this point, it's not. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hi, Katie, I struggle with binge eating and my psychiatrist has recommended a drug that is used for opioid addiction that should take away the pleasure that I get from eating. What other options do I have? There are medications out there. I want to say, is it, I think it's Vivance, you guys, it's for ADHD and it, it's been helpful. It's been, um, uh, approved for treatment of binge eating disorder. Now this one, I don't know what, what they're talking about. I'm not, I don't think Vivance has that, but maybe, um, I'm always, okay. <laughs> Just putting my thoughts together. A couple of things. Number one, taking a medication doesn't fix the problem. The eating disorder exists for a reason. Now, could we take this medication for a short time so that we're able to do the tough therapeutic work that we need to do to get through this so that we don't need the eating disorder anymore? Hells to the yeah. No judgment on anyone who takes medication. It's there for a reason and it can be incredibly healing and beneficial. However, like I said, it's not going to fix the problem. And so it's almost like putting a bandaid on a hole in a dam. That hole still is going to bust through. Like, it, it doesn't fix the real problem. It just, ugh. it's, I guess it's not even like putting a bandit on a dam. That's not even a good analogy. You know what the best analogy is? Cause now I have a yard to take care of. It's like, instead of pulling a weed out, 
by the root, I cut it and hope it doesn't grow back. And I just keep taking this medication and cutting it, but it's still there. And so other options that you have are actual eating disorder treatment. I encourage you to, you know, get a dietitian, see a therapist, uh, pick up that book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. There's also the book in the Intuitive Eating Workbook that's in my Amazon shop as well. Um, I don't encourage you to do that on your own. I think with a therapist is best. Those are your options. Yes, we can take this medication and it can help us manage, but then we have to figure out what is causing this and work to heal that wound because we're overeating as a way to numb out. And what are you numbing out from? And that's really where the work starts. And that's where we can heal so that we don't have to, if we want to take this medication, we don't have to be on it for a long time. And if we don't, it will make it so that we don't really need the medication anymore. Okay. You got options. Don't worry. Okay. Moving on to question number eight says, Hey Katie, what's the difference between a binge eater or oh, binge eating disorder and a food addiction? I feel like sugar is my kryptonite. Also, I'm picky, lactose intolerant, and acidic foods aggravate an an overactive bladder condition. So I feel like I can't easily avoid sugar. I suspect I have a binge eating disorder and that it's gotten worse this summer, but I haven't been diagnosed with it. Thanks. Now, yes, I think this is binge eating disorder. I don't, food addiction to me, and I don't, if you guys disagree, that's fair. But food addiction to me, I feel like is binge eating disorder because that reward center in our brain lights up when we eat certain things. Sugar can be one of them. Carbohydrates, like simple carbohydrates that turn into sugar can also trigger that reward center. There's a reason that there are certain foods that we like to treat ourselves with, or we you know, might eat a little bit more than normal on because, ooh, it feels so good, right? And food and feelings shouldn't be connected. Is that? So the difference really to me isn't anything because I do know through research that binge eaters also get that triggered, just like you would talk about when you talk about like a food addiction. Now, I encourage you to consider back what I said earlier about the symptoms and the diagnostic criteria of binge eating disorder and see if that lines up for you. Because my my hypothesis for you is that you do have binge eating disorder and one of your biggest binge foods is sugar. That would be how I would classify this. So many of my binge eaters are picky. That's it kind of cracked me up when I was reading this because I was like, oh yeah, I have a ton of it. A lot of my binge eaters are extremely picky. Many are like vegan or vegetarian or have these different things. Um, I think people assume that when we overeat, that means that we just eat anything. Mm-mm. No, no, no. It just means that we eat more than a, a normal amount of food in a short amount of time. We have shame about it and we try to hide it and all of that stuff. And we don't do any compensatory behaviors, Right. So I don't think there's any difference. Like I said, if you disagree, you can let me know, but I think they are the same thing, just a different term for the same thing. And I, I believe that we use the term food addiction, to be honest, prior to having the binge eating disorder diagnosis. If you don't recall, it was placed in the DSM, I think in 2013 was the DSM-5 text revision. I might be wrong on that, but it was in one of our recent DSMs that it finally became not the most recent that just came out, but the one before it is when it first became a diag- like an actual diagnosis. And I think that that in all truth replaces the need for food addiction, but people might disagree. I know there is Overeaters Anonymous when it comes to like, you know, the AANA and OA type worlds. I'm not a huge fan. I don't feel like 
not eating. I don't think there should be restriction around what we eat. I think all there's room for all foods in our diet and we have to heal our relationship with food, not just cut things out. So I don't really like OA, but if it helps you, you do what's best for you. Okay. Okay. Moving on to our final question. Question number nine it says, Hey Katie, how can I deal with the guilt that I experience after a binge? I used to purge. I don't anymore. And that was un that was usually my unhealthy way of getting rid of the guilt that I felt from eating too much. But now when I binge, I'm left feeling terrible and it makes me want to self-harm. Very common. Sorry if that doesn't make sense, but thank you so much for everything that you do. Our community is so thankful for you. Oh, of course, of course. Okay, you're not going to like my answer. The way to get rid of the guilt is to figure out what purpose your eating disorder serves and to do I'm just going to be honest, a shitload of impulse logs. Every time you want to binge, I want you to be doing one before. Every time you want to purge, I want you to be doing one. Every time you want to self-injure because you didn't purge, I want you to be doing one. We've got to figure out what the root of this, What? why are we engaging in this behavior? What purpose is this serving? Because that will tell us what we need to work on in therapy. We can't get rid of the guilt until we figure out where the eating disorder comes from. Like I said, when I was reading off the diagnostic criteria of binge eating disorder, that guilt is like part of it. And we can't get rid of the eating disorder if we don't understand where it comes from. We can't just try to remove something. It'll come right back, right? It's like that weed. We just keep snipping without pulling the root out. And that root is usually some kind of emotional neglect or abuse or, but not always, it could even just be overwhelmed with our life and having a lack of coping skills and resilience, which are things we can work on in therapy to build up. There could be a lot of different reasons. And until we understand what it is for you, you're going to be toggling between like eating disorder, self-injury, uh, possibly, I don't just speaking broadly to other people addictions. And when I say addictions, I mean drugs, alcohol, shopping, sex, like porn, things like that, right? There's all sorts of ways we can, you know, use addiction, but there's all these different unhealthy coping skills. And that's why you keep toggling between them, right? Oh, I didn't purge. Okay. I've got that under control. Oh, self-injury is here to say hello. It's because there's no real coping happening. And if you're looking for more process-based coping skills, which is what I'm talking about, check out my old video. Um, Just look on YouTube, go 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it'll pop up. I think the second chunk of them, if my memory serves me, are the process-based ones. And there's tons in the comments. I'd encourage you to try those out. Um, I talk about impulse logs there too. So if you're wanting more detail about that, you can get more information over there. But that's really how we get rid of this guilt is we have to figure out why our eating disorders here and heal that so that the eating disorder goes away. I know that's a shitty answer. Like I said, you're not going to like it, but it, it's unfortunately the truth. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for all of your wonderful reviews and for sharing this with your friends and family. It really, truly does help. I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.